Part of the Rewatching Good Television Podcast Network. It's the Sorkin Cast. Here's your host, Matthew Murdick. And welcome to the Sorkin Cast. It's episode 26 of the podcast. We're back after a month off uh, where I've been trying to get stuff together in order to present you for a new season because I've been touring a lot. And uh, we are going to be covering this week uh, something different. We're going to be starting West Wing season two next week. But this week we're going to be covering the movie The Social Network. By the way, my name is Matt Murdick. I am from sorkincast.wordpress.com. That's your one-stop shop for all things regarding this podcast, including contact information and podcatcher links. If you can take the time to leave me a review on iTunes, I'd very much appreciate it. also want to remind you that if you use those contact links to contact me about any of the Season 2 episodes of West Wing, especially the first 11 episodes, please get it to me by Tuesday, April 19th, so that I can include your feedback in that feedback podcast that will follow that date. And that's enough about the podcast. I'm excited to talk about this movie, The Social Network, uh, by written by Aaron Sorkin, uh, based on a book. And I thought it would be kind of interesting to start uh, kind of a quasi-season two of the Sorkin cast by having back the guest who uh, started off this podcast with me. And he had told me that he was really excited about the movie, The Social Network. So it's it's my pleasure to welcome back the founder and the main operator of the Double P Podcast Network, which includes podcasts covering anything from the movie Star Wars right down to Game of Thrones. We welcome back Bubba. How are you, sir? Matt, it's great to be here. It's really great. Why did you say I was the founder? What are you implying? Are you implying I'm not good enough to be a co-founder or a president or a CEO? I was your only friend, Matt. <laughs> only one. <laughs> Calm down, Andrew. Okay, Calm sorry, down. Sorry. Calm down, Eduardo. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, great. It's great to have you back. And um, I remember, actually, when we did our very first podcast, we, we talked about your interest in Sorkin, and this was something you brought up. So it was great to have you back uh, to talk about this particular movie. And I'd like to give you just a rundown a little bit of the uh, the facts about the movie before we get started. It was a screenplay written by Aaron Sorkin, and it was directed by, of course, the great director David Fincher. It hit theaters on October 1st, 2010, and some stars in the film include Jesse Eisenberg, Andrew Garfield, and Justin Timberlake. Uh, the music score... Uh, which I will have a little section on towards the end of the podcast, was by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. It was nominated for eight Oscars in 2011, including Best Picture, Best Cinematography, Sound Mixing, Best Director, and Best Actor, and it won three Oscars for Film Editing, Musical Score, and Best Adapted Screenplay by Aaron Sorkin, our guy here. Yay! (laughs) The movie itself, Bubba, I have to tell you, for me... I did not actually see it in the theaters. In fact, I didn't even know that Sorkin had done anything with it until uh, after the Oscars came out and it was getting all of the notoriety and the awards. And uh, I was just totally unaware of it. I had to wait till it came out uh, on DVD. I think it was already out on DVD by the time that I saw the the hubbub about it on the awards circuit. But uh, it still took me a little while before I got to it. And I hadn't really 
rewatch the film until we started talking about podcasting about it again. What was your experience uh, with the film? Did you see it in the theaters? I did. I did. This, the, Matt, it's it's kind of a boring story, but I'm still going to tell it anyway. I live out here in Los Angeles in Hollywood, and anytime you have to drive up to the valley, a lot of us here who live uh, in the Hollywood area, we drive up this street called Highland, and I remember there was this poster featuring uh, Eisenberg, a.k.a. Uh, uh, the, uh, you know, Zuckerberg's face. And I just thought, boy, they're making a movie about that. That just sounds miserable. Who would want to see it was my first thought. And then sure enough, I knew some people, some people younger than me. They were like, oh, I can't wait to see it. It's, I can't wait to see it. It's going to be so great. I just can't wait to see it. And so they got me excited and I did decide to see it in the weekend. Uh, sorry, in the theaters opening weekend and uh spoiler alert. I loved it. Most everybody I know loved it. Heck, my stepmom loved it. <laughs> and so <laughs> it reached across generations, even though it was about these uh, young adults in <laughs> building a business. And so I really hadn't been a huge fan of Fincher from Aliens 3. Sorkin, obviously, if you listen to the first podcast, I'm not the biggest Sorkin fan. But they, uh, in my opinion, knocked it out of the park in this one. I give it 10 Double B's out of 10. Double B's? Yeah, double B is a term I like to use when I refer to bastard billionaires. And so, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I I think it's great. And I'm so glad, Matt. Thank you very much for inviting me back on the podcast to talk about it. I, it was a wonderful time revisiting this film. All right. Well, I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it yet again. And, and so did I. And I have to say, I, I mean, I don't know what kind of film tastes you have, but generally those kind of like based on actual events or, or bio kind of picks, do not do it for me. And this oh, one yeah. was quite the exception. No, I'm exactly like you, Matt. If I see it's based on true events, I always think to myself, boy, I'd rather see a documentary about this. And I could go through the list of actual movies, including the film that won Best Picture that year, which I really didn't enjoy at all, the, uh, the King's Speech, when I wanted The Social Network to win, and uh, Inception and so many other better films. But no, this is The Social Network is why a fictional account of real events uh, can be brilliant. I think it's a brilliant movie. Excellent. I guess the best thing to do to start out with talking about this film is probably just kind of bring up points that we like or dislike about the film, about maybe about the plot or, or about Mark Zuckerberg's life. And of course, this movie is about the founder of, well, really a couple of guys who founded Facebook. And if you if you haven't seen it, I don't know why you're listening to this podcast, but I just thought I might preface that that we're going to be talking about specific plot points in the film. And, and Bubba, what, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you're when you're just thinking about the plot of the film in general? Well, all of these thoughts that I have actually come from this most recent watching the film. They didn't strike me so much when I was watching it, maybe the first or second time, just because I was enjoying it so much, this kind of battle of egos and ideas and stuff. But one of the first ones that hit me is how the main character, it is so much about this main character, Mark Zuckerberg, that it is introduced in the very first scene with him. And so my first point was, 
is it starts with Zuckerberg. He's talking so quick. And in a quick bit of dialogue, you learn so much about him. But it isn't until the end of the movie or later into the movie till you can reflect on it. In that one of the first things Mark is talking about is about here at Harvard, this thing called the final clubs, which are like apparently a step above fraternities in that college life and the rowing team. And he's talking about them kind of bitter towards him, kind of longingly. And it, it isn't until you watch the whole movie that you realize, boy, the lead character wants to be a Winklevoss, which is kind of like the epitome of the anti-him. He wants to be someone other than himself. He's uh, wanted to have come from money and privilege and be this kind of blue blood jock. At the same time, he kind of resented it and hated it. And so you're learning some, some of the internal conflict within your main character. Sheesh, within 30 seconds of the film beginning, love it. Yeah, and and it is great, like you point out. It it doesn't in that particular context of just a singular scene, it doesn't make near as much sense until you see what ends up happening, right? Uh, with 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 the Winklevosses, or or even with uh, any other thing. There's possible implications about, the, especially that uh, Eduardo uh, Saverin makes, uh, who was his kind of his partner, his CFO to begin Facebook with. Uh, he makes that maybe there was a resentment about the fact that Eduardo had made the Phoenix Club, which was one right. of those final clubs. Um, and that brings me to the point that everybody seems, and this was something that really stuck out to me throughout the whole film, is that everybody seems like they're accusing Zuckerberg of something. And based on the way maybe Eisenberg portrays it, um, you don't necessarily, or I did not get the impression that he actually did any of it. But there's such evidence, even as you say in this first thing, that maybe he did do some of it. Uh, you know, that there's a whole thing. Uh, possibly he tipped off the crimson about the animal abuse, or uh, if Sean Parker asks if he tips off the cops about the party miners, and uh, you know, I'm sure there's lots more. What what do you have on the things that he was accused of? Well, yeah, Mark is not. He's such a great character, but he's not likable he's shifty even to the audience even though he's our window into this world and once again our main protagonist he comes across so kind of detached in some ways someone who is not quote-unquote social so that if anybody accuses mark of anything you tend to see even if you believe that he probably didn't do it you could see how somebody would think he had done it. And what's funny is so many people accuse Mark of so many things that I put in the very first scene, Mark accuses his uh, very short-term girlfriend, Erica, of sleeping with the doorman, and that's the only way they got into the club. So once again, Mark has a bit of a, you know, I'm persecuted complex, the character in the film. And yeah. so uh, he's not above accusing somebody else of something <laughs> terrible as people accuse him of things terrible. Like you watching the film, I really didn't think Mark was involved with either of these. He might have been a bit jealous and a bit bitter that he didn't get the invite into the final club, the Phoenix Club. But I still, if I had to guess by the movie's betrayal, I don't think Maybe we're not supposed to know as an audience, but as myself as an audience, I thought he really wasn't involved in something that shady. Yeah, I, I drew the same conclusion. And, and let's make no bones about it. Mark Zuckerberg in this movie is an asshole. I just oh, don't yeah. think he's that extreme of an asshole. You know, he doesn't seem it's more like. Well, I'll even put it to this point. Um, 
you could say that Erica could blame him for doing that whole face mash thing simply to draw attention to his blog where he was talking <laughs> about Erica. Right. You know, I mean, it could go to that kind of extreme. But uh, other than the blogging, um, I don't think he really took that much of a proactive revenge kind of thing. Um Well, of course, of this movie. Well, you say that there is the scene much later in the film where uh, sure enough, he's there with his uh, Sean Parker, his new business colleague. And Sean Parker's encouraging him to go into this venture capitalist meeting in pajamas and then pretty much say, screw you to the guys. (laughs) And so he's not afraid of he's not above a little uh, childish behavior for someone who was ridiculously young when this all went down. Well, that is very true. That is very true. Um, I saw that as Parker kind of goading him into it. Oh, yeah, more than I, did anything else. I did you know, too. I did too. Sure, I'll take that dare, um, that kind of thing. But uh, it, it's still, you're absolutely right. Uh, if he if he'd have been a totally benign kind of person, he would he would have told Parker, no, no way, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, what else you got on this film, plot wise? Well, I have a couple of points. I'm going to jump to one of my thir- my third point here in this list I've made for myself just because we, we, we did suddenly bring up Sean Parker and that this is an interesting film in that our main protagonist has a devil and an angel on each shoulder. On one shoulder, he's got a devil and on one shoulder, he's got an angel. But unlike a typical movie, which does this, actually, you know, an angel and a devil uh, on each shoulder is something you see in a million movies. But what's interesting about this movie, at least from my perspective, is that the angel on Mark's shoulder, his uh, friend, college friend, Eduardo, who I call sometimes the Jiminy Cricket of this film, is that Eduardo is kind of like the angel on his shoulder, the nice guy, but about like factual details. He's just wrong a lot of times. Like at the time I thought it, you know, in hindsight, it's very easy to see that when Eduardo pushes things, whether it's, hey, we got to monetize the site, we got to monetize the site, we got to put ads on the site. It's really kind of old thinking. You know, he didn't read the contracts which are handed in front of him. Eduardo, what are you doing? That's wrong. You're the angel and you're saying things and doing things that are wrong. While the quote unquote devil on our main character's shoulder is this character called Sean Parker, who is a complete a-hole without question, but about kind of facts and business ideas. Sean is generally correct. (laughs) He was like, listen, Facebook, you got to be careful with it. It could be a billion dollar idea. You know, he's like, you know, lose the the Facebook and just have it be Facebook. It's cleaner. He says, you got to move to California. You got to get venture capitalists involved about these things, about Sean, who we can see kind of is a oily, sleazy, kind of the person you don't want to be involved with. But about his ideas, at least as they're presented in the films, the devil on Mark's shoulder is actually correct. And so I just thought it was just kind of a brilliant construction, which uh, I think makes it a fascinating movie and character study between these kind of three characters in the film. Yeah, that's that's a great point. And, you know, the funny thing is for me is despite the fact that that Sean Parker is really a sleazeball. Yeah. You know, um, there are some things that the the musician in me just really can't stand about (laughs) like the whole Napster (laughs) thing, of course. Right. But uh, but nonetheless, um, he did make the music industry answerable, not just to to listeners, but also to artists because of what he did. It's kind of a, a weird dichotomy that I have to, to take with Sean Parker about the the Napster thing. Uh, but uh, he, he does seem 
you know, he, he is this, this slimy guy, but nonetheless, I found him very charismatic, which is probably why he ended up being so successful. <laughs> yeah. You know? But yeah, but this is what's great about it, Matt. If you were going to say, which one of these three guys would you want to be friends with, you know, like be buddies with, I imagine pretty much everybody in the audience would say, I'd want to be friends with Eduardo. He seems like an okay guy. And yet it's the other two, Mark and Sean, who who definitely seem less socially wonderful. Mark, because he's just so introverted and so kind of in his own way. And then Sean, because he's so fake socially, it feels like. That, but they're the ones you really need to follow. They're the ones who kind of saw the light uh, that many people in the world didn't see. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They were they were much more the visionary, despite whatever methods might have been used to get there. Right. It's almost like I would imagine it is if you ever met. I know so many people are musicians or writers or actors and they're or any field, and you look up to somebody, and then you meet that person, and they're a complete jerk. <laughs> And so do you still, you know, kind of worship them because, oh, they released this album that I love or they directed this film that I love and such and such? Or are you like, God, I can't appreciate that person at all. I think it's I think it's an interesting question. I think the movie presents us with kind of complex characters. And that's why, as someone who in the very first episode of the Sorkin cast was very tough on Eric Sorkin in some of his shows where I don't think the characters are as complex and it doesn't have what I like to call intelligent people discussing things intelligently. Sometimes in these shows, Sorkin creates straw men, you know, straw men whose opinions are wrong, who are kind of terrible people. So a hero can knock them down and be a hero. But here, maybe this film has no heroes, but there aren't any kind of straw arguments. They're all kind of very intelligent. Even the Winklevoss twins are correct in so many ways. And you understand their plight, even if, once again, they are kind of the entitled brats that many of us would rebel against as well. Exactly. And they, they you know, they accuse them of stealing Connect You. And, and um, by all rights, when, when you go between the two sets of depositions that are presented in this movie, I know that you have a note here that, that kind of time jumps around to keep the viewers engaged love them the the first time i saw it though i was i didn't realize i guess that there were actually two separate lawsuits i just thought that they were giving the same deposition in two different places uh despite the, <laughs> yeah the, it's crazy the present huh? yeah so it, i was confused a little bit about it now once i got through some of it then i understood what was going on but i do love that even something just as simple as that uh, requires you to pay attention to what each and every character is saying because it has to be in the context of the lawsuit as well as in the context of the relationship with the jumping back to the flashbacks and then forward to the depositions. Oh, yeah. The time jumps, I thought, are how you could have a talkie kind of, this could this could happen in a play, right? This could be a fine play and uh, because all of it is just people in rooms talking and you could easily do this as a play. And so how do you visually keep it up, keep it interesting, kind of add suspense because pretty much your audience knows what Facebook is. And so one of the ways he did it was by jumping around. I just love that. I also want to say that the Wigglevoss's uh, lawyer, I recognized from an old soap opera. So I really liked him too, where he got to be in something, you know, kind of better than a soap opera. And uh, I think all, it was just great. I loved the time jumps. I love that I had to 
be an engaged viewer. This is a screenplay and a movie that's been edited to where viewers have to be engaged without question. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, I, I applaud the way it was cut together, uh, the editors and, and uh, the, the direction that, that Finch took it. Uh, what do you have, anything else plot-wise that you wanted to talk about? Well, the the only thing plot-wise, and it's not even so much plot-wise as maybe kind of theme-wise and in, in why the movie almost works as a parable for our age, our time, in that the movie is really kind of set up a lot as old, what I like to call old money versus new money, in that you've got people in suits and ties, meaning the Winklevoss twins, and to be honest, Eduardo all the time is wearing a suit jacket. In real life, apparently Eduardo was the kind of kid who would wear a suit to class, versus the new money, a.k.a. the hoodies and pajama crowd, that are were the, really the ones pushing this social network forward. And so it's a bit like, you know, once again, which side are you on? Or is it just that the old school is just old and you've got to get with the new school or you're going to be burned? Yeah. Jump ahead or or get left behind. It it, it almost seems like that kind of a, a context. Right. And even this kind of, you know, breaking down shares, you know, this the really the the kind of boiling point comes when Ed, Eduardo shares are, you know, kind of get become he has millions of shares, but they suddenly become almost worthless. And so that's also I feel like almost a new kind of the new financial rules playing out versus or, or sorry, that's the new financial rules where people like Eduardo is old school. You know, something like the Winklevoss twins not suing, not wanting to sue or, you know, say something disparaging about it in the in the crimson, for God's sakes. We are men of Harvard. You know, that old thinking is being left behind. Yeah, very much so. Well, in terms of the uh, the actual performances, I, I think is what we should turn to next because the plot is very well realized and, and very engaging, um, but it's still, every to me, every Sorkin show, no matter how well written, is always execution dependent. So I'd like to ask you if you have any favorite performances from the film. I do. Well, let me say that I am so tempted and so desperately want to give it to Army Hammer, who played not one, but both of the Winklevoss twins, Cameron and Tyler, who had to kind of act against a stage double and then re- and then come back, you know, redress himself, restyle his hair, and then come act against uh, the exact same stage double, you know, playing both parts, which was yeah. really an incredible feat, and he does it so, so well. And admittedly, with the hair, you can kind of tell which one's which, but I thought he did a great job. But I'm going to have to give it up to our best actor, Jesse Eisenberg, as M- Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, he, was, he, was, he was a revelation. Because I had seen him in one of his earlier films, uh, The Squid and the Whale, and that was a film which had gotten a lot of buzz, which I really just hadn't thought too much about. But then you see him in this, and it's like he's come to life. I dare anybody to watch this show network and then watch this trailer for the upcoming movie uh, Batman vs. Superman where he he's playing Lex Luthor, but you see him in this trailer, and it's like, hey – what in the world are they doing? Why is Mark Zuckerberger playing, you know, beating up <laughs> Superman? He does such a great job with what is certainly could be an easily a thankless role. I like to call it a Citizen Kane type role. This is a role of a, in many ways, an unlikable tyrant 
who also is childish and whitey and emotionally sheltered and treats women terribly. Like there's so many things, but he is magnetic. He holds the whole piece together. I think all of the acting in this is great, but Jesse Eisenberg, you know, one of the other roles I think could have been poorly acted and it still might've worked just because Jesse as the center of this film is so strong. That's mine. Well, I totally agree with you in terms of probably the best performance in the film. Um, However, it's not my favorite performance in the film. My favorite, actually because it surprised me so much, was Justin Timberlake as Sean Parker. Uh, I was just riveted by Parker's tales. You know, I was just as riveted by them as Zuckerberg was. And (laughs) I I think that's because uh, Timberlake just pulled that role off so well. I... I I really don't know how much talent it took Justin Timberlake. I mean, his acting credits include, you know, what, uh, being in the Walt Disney's Club or whatever when he was a kid. (laughs) Mickey Mouse Club, yeah. In the Mickey Mouse Club, yeah. So, you know, I I don't attribute him to be a great actor, but a guy like Justin Timberlake's got to have a certain amount of charisma anyway. And he used just, I guess he applied that to his acting. And I I don't want to belittle the acting because it really was my favorite performance. I was just shocked by how much I really uh, was drawn in by the Parker role. And yes, he's a sleazeball and all of that, but it it just still, I, I was just like, man, I can believe that he is actually this guy. I can believe he's the guy that screwed everybody over with Napster. You know, (laughs) Is it that he's so magnetic? Even let me ask you this while you are watching this and he is doing, for example, he's having cocaine parties in this house. Are you not kind of torn up or do you think, yeah, he's okay? Well, like, what are your thoughts towards the character? And does he do great in both? Because he has to be paranoid, he has to be slick. Yeah, well, he is slick, and I think he does the paranoia thing very well. I'll tell you what what really sold me on on it was his phone call to Zuckerberg from jail uh, because I saw some vulnerability there that I didn't expect to see because in in that moment, Parker realizes that this could really be trouble, you know, Um, and I thought that. I thought that Timberlake did great in that phone call scene, uh, and that made – that's – definitely helped sell everything else for me um, that Timberlake was Sean Parker. And I, you know, I didn't like Parker, so to speak uh, for some of the ways that he was, but at the same time, I couldn't help but listen to him. If the movie, let's me go a bit further with this, Matt, if the movie had been the Sean Parker story, you're saying you still might've been just as fascinated if it had been about him. And I, and I could understand how you could be. Uh, they should. Aaron Sorkin should write a movie Let's about Napster. It. Yeah, yeah. Let's do write, it. I know you're listening, Mr. Sorkin. Go ahead, write a movie about Napster now. Listen. Let's let's have your agent call his agent. Let's have lunch. Let's nail this thing out. We got more yeah. awards to win. Or better yet, you know, Aaron. Never mind. Let's just let Bubba write it. He writes films. That's we'll true. let Bubba write the film, and uh, then we'll just make all the money ourselves. Right. I'll score it. I'll do. Uh, I love I'll use this. A, yeah, yeah, here we go. The Napster movie. We'll just call it, uh, I don't know, Napster. There right. We go. Now, if you want to pitch me, kind of, if you want to be a producer and uh, pay for this movie, listeners, you can reach me on Twitter at Fit and Trim. That's F I T T E N T R I M, at Fit and Trim on Twitter. And I will be happy to start writing this screenplay right now.
We need to get a Patreon page set up for you that's at Fit and Trim. Uh, <laughs> pa- Patreon.com slash Fit and Trim. F-I-T-T-E-N-T-R-I-M for certain. Now, Matt, before we maybe move to some performances in the film that didn't work as strongly, I want to say that so far we've been talking about men, 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 men. And for pretty much the most part, white men, white men, white men. One of the things that I know some people kind of had issue with is that there aren't many women in the film, aren't many female characters. And outside of maybe Rashida Jones as the assistant there for Zuckerberg's attorney, and her name is Marilyn Delpy, like, are women portrayed politely in the movie? And uh, I, any women performances you like or thoughts on the women portrayal in the movie? That's an excellent point because um, it, it there doesn't seem to be any women in this movie that are of consequence to Zuckerberg, right. at least from the story standpoint. Outside uh, of his ex-girlfriend, Erica. Outside of Erica. And I was just going to say, that first scene with uh, with Rooney Mara and, and uh, Jesse Eisenberg uh, instantly pulled me into the film. I, I think it was just fantastic. I, I meant to save this for my favorite scene, but it really just, to me... Um, her reactions and her responses to that, I I I give it up for Rooney Mara. Um, well, I and, would I would say Matt, just to piggyback on your thing, it's that Rooney Mara in that first scene and in the later scene where Mark approaches her at a restaurant and such, uh, you're so much on her side. You know, mm-hmm. she may be in the film very minimally, but you know, quote unquote, if you were going to be on a team, there anybody who's going to watch this and be on team Mark. They're like team Erica all the way. Here is somebody who you can see why he would be attracted to her. She's intelligent. She can keep up with him and his motor mouth that never seems to end. But she's also seemingly has a soul. And so, yeah, you, she does a, she does a great performance in very little screen time. I completely agree. Absolutely. And, and again, it's execution pit dependent, but what that with the power between her performance and the writing does is that you know there are these moments where everybody's accusing Zuckerberg of everything, and you think, man, you know, it just doesn't seem like he did it. But at the same time, when you see the way that he, you know, he really hurt Erica, um, then and and even at the end when he's trying to get the friend request from her oh. and she just doesn't answer back and he just keeps hitting refresh because he just hasn't learned. You know, those are the kind of things that do make Zuckerberg much more gray than just a typical protagonist. And human. And what I would say is that after that great opening scene, the opening credits and so much are kind of as Mark runs across campus, runs across uh, the, the town there at Cambridge, and so he's so alone. And so you see this throughout the film, even in the score, which I know you're going to go over in a bit, which is such a, a score. I just love the score so much, too, is that it's it's in the score. A lot of times it's just like a single instrument because Mark, who <laughs> who created the social network with millions of friends and followers and all this stuff, he is very alone. The character is in the film. He is. Uh, and even like uh... – Eduardo Saverin says he's like I was your only friend. You only had one friend, and and you and you managed to to uh, to piss that away. <laughs> you know, yeah. it, it's uh and and it, it does seem you know he, he he never mentions friends any other time. Even when he's in talking in the deposition, he only refers to the people that he works closely with, has worked closely with since they were in the little 
in the little dorm room and then later out in the house in California and now into the office. They're all just colleagues. That's exactly right. Uh, right. should, Should we hit on our least favorite performances, Matt? Because it seems like you and I agree on this one. We pretty much do agree on this one. I'll let you take the uh I'll let you take the tumble. Okay, so once again, I think everybody in this film, all the actors, give a marvelous performance. And sadly, because all the performances are so great, when you sneak in a cameo by someone who maybe acts less frequently, aka screenwriter Aaron Sorkin, it stands <laughs> out. Not not necessarily terribly. It's just when everybody else is doing a great to incredible job and you are adequate, it doesn't sell it as much. <laughs> exactly. And I, I, I kind of made a joke, but I'm also taking it kind of seriously. I wonder if Fincher didn't give him too much coverage in that scene <laughs> simply for the fact that, you know, he wasn't really pulling it off in the same way. I mean, even just uh, Andrew Garfield and, and uh, Jesse Eisenberg's their their sides of the scene were fine, but then it, w- when you have the wide shots or when you have the close up on on Sorkin, it's just kind of like, who is this guy? You know, and it, it was almost like, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, it was almost like it was a moment just made to to give Sorkin some credit. You know, uh, like I, you said, to be honest, he's not he's not bad. It's just everybody else is incredible. You right. wonder how many takes they gave him. <laughs> <laughs> they probably didn't give him nearly as many no, takes as no. he wanted. Right. <laughs> I'm sure because we all know we all know how uh, meticulous Sorkin can be about certain things. So uh, if you ever watch that uh, that writing roundtable that he did a few months ago, uh, uh, which involved his uh, stuff about Steve Jobs. Um, you can see that Sorkin is really kind of an anti-social uh, network kind of guy. He doesn't like Twitter. He doesn't like oh. Facebook and all this. Yeah, that came across in the newsroom, too. Yeah, and he, he openly uh, he openly just kind of downplays it uh, a lot or, rid- I, I guess, ridicules it in a lot of ways, uh, especially in that roundtable. So um, I understand that it's the kind of the perfect role for him because he's like an ad guy that, you know, well, what are these punks doing? You know, because that's pretty much the way Sorkin is <laughs> about <laughs> about social networks in general is what are these punks doing? Uh, but it just it just didn't work as well as uh, the performances of everybody else. Yeah. While we're beating up his performance, uh, I should say his, you know, quote unquote, pay his real job screenwriting. I can't go enough into how wonderful this script is, how it how it moves, how it conveys everything. Like I say, in the in the first couple of seconds, you are introduced to Mark, the main character, and you understand him almost entirely, even though obviously, yes, he's based on a real person. But none of us know the real person. It's this character is introduced so cleanly. They all are. They're all complex. Even the background characters have complexities. Uh, and so he he did a bang up job. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and he should stay. I, I almost picture him not even using a computer, but using a typewriter. But he should stay behind that <laughs> and uh, uh, let, leave, leave the cameos to, to Fincher or somebody like that. Oh, yeah. All right. Anything else about uh, performances that you wanted to comment on before we move on to one of my favorite things, the best quote? 
Well, just a, another minor one, and I think some of the kind of the where are the women, what women roles are in this film, I think they all come about because of a character named Christy, which is portrayed by an actress, Brenda Song, who mm. also kind of, like Timberlake, got her start doing a lot of Disney Channel shows. And mm-hmm. so, yes, she's not the most uh, well-rounded of all of the characters, but she provides a great spice for Eduardo in that scene where she confronts him while he's also trying to, you know, confront and scream at Mark on the phone. So I, I wanted to give her a tip of the hat too. You, she brought the crazy on very well. That, yeah. that was pretty awesome, you know, and burning the scarf. <laughs> that was fantastic. Uh, I, I, I love that. And, well, and even when they, when they first meet, you know, and, uh, they, uh, I guess Zuckerberg and, and uh, Saverin get taken to the bathroom. Uh, you know, there's a little bit of crazy in that too. So she oh, was yeah. consistent through the through the whole thing. That was fantastic. And a oh. minimal shout out that uh, for all our fans. Now let me say I have not seen it. All our fans who love Fifty Shades of Grey. Yes, that was the lead actress from Fifty Shades of Grey, Dakota Johnson, as Timberlake's uh, hookup, who allows him to find out about the website Facebook. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, I I, haven't... I recognized her watching it this time through, and I go, how do I know her? And then I go, oh, she's Don Johnson's daughter, uh, and Ellie Griffith's daughter, Dakota Johnson. So, yeah, that's her uh, having a shower scene where she doesn't show anything before she started Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> right on. Very good. Well, she, was, she, was, she was getting ready for that role, I suppose. That's correct. Uh, Stanford. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, uh, uh, how about uh, we move into the best quote of the film for you, and uh, we'll drop in little clips of these for you all to listen to as well. But Bubba, what was your favorite quote? Well, I teased it right at the top. You mentioned it a second ago. It's the one that sticks with me when I think about the film. I was your only friend. You had one friend. And then, of course, Eduardo goes on to say, My dad can't even look at me or something like that. And it's because it's so powerful. You understand, or I did as a viewer, the emotion and the anger and the frustration that is coming from Eduardo in that scene. It makes complete sense to me, his anger. But then the irony of somebody who created Facebook, which is all about friends. And dare I say it, I'm old enough to remember when people were like uh, asking me, hey, are you on the Facebook? And I, I was being asked if I was on it when it was a the, I remember. And, uh, you know, how there was a point where you would feel bad. Oh, you've only got this many friends on Facebook, you know, Facebook friends, as they're called. And uh, I think that's a great line. And it really sets up, you know, kind of once again, how he's a, you know, a Foster Kane character from Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane, spoiler alert for what some people say is the greatest movie of all time, is about, you know, somebody who really didn't have any friends. And maybe this uh, it's just strong. It's powerful. I love it. And and I, I dare I say it, Eisenberg's performance in that is great, too, because you see how it, it, it hurt him. He's a human being. Of course that hurts him. And so that's my favorite line. Absolutely. Well, let's give that a listen. Repeat the question. No, it was an outrageously leading question the first time around, and now you want us to hear it twice? Yes, would you read it back, please? Well, go ahead. Counsel, and when you signed these documents, were you aware that you were signing your own death certificate? No. It was insanely stupid of me not to have my own lawyers look over all the... In in all honesty, I thought they were my lawyers. I was your only friend. 
get one, friend. Excellent choice, Bubba. That is very powerful. Um, mine comes from uh, Zuckerberg to the the Winklevosses. So we we both are, have chosen uh, deposition scenes, but mine comes uh, to the the Winklevoss lawyer when he's demanding uh, Mark's attention. I think your client, if your clients want to sit on my shoulders and call themselves tall, they have a right to give it a try, but there's no requirement that I sit here and enjoy listening to people lie or something to that effect. No. Then why didn't you raise any of these concerns before? It's raining. I'm sorry? It just started raining. Mr. Zuckerberg, do I have your full attention? No. Do you think I deserve it? What? Do you think I deserve your full attention? I had to swear an oath before we began this deposition, and I don't want to perjure myself, so I have a legal obligation to say no. Okay, no. You don't think I deserve your attention? I think if your clients want to sit on my shoulders and call themselves tall, they have a right to give it a try, but there's no requirement that I enjoy sitting here listening to people lie. You have part of my attention. You have the minimum amount. The rest of my attention is back at the offices of Facebook, where my colleagues and I are doing things that no one in this room, including and especially your clients, are intellectually or creatively capable of doing. Did I adequately answer your condescending question? From that moment, actually, uh, whether I liked Zuckerberg or not, that's the moment where I started rooting for him, no matter what. Even if he was going to turn out to be the bad guy, it was at that moment where I realized this guy is just a cut beyond everybody else. The oh, way that line... The ego, oh my God. Oh, it was it was fantastic. I, <laughs> I, I just loved it. It was like at that moment, because to me, in the movie, he had proven that he was the only one that could do it, you know? So that was at the point where it's just kind of like, it's kind of like, yeah, screw these other guys. I don't care. Let, let him do it his way. Um, and of course I knew it was going to cost him money at the end. It always, co- it doesn't matter how right or how wrong you are about being right or wrong. It's just a question of wh- how little money you have to pay for being so. Right. Okay. Well, hold on now, Matt, I love this, that you say you started rooting for Mark. I want to go, let's get to it as, you know, let's ignore, you know, the reality for a bit and just go by the facts as they're presented in the movie, in the movie. Does Mark owe some money, to, in your opinion, to the Winklevoss twins and to the uh, other character there who I'm blanking on his name for a second? But, yeah, does he, be, does he owe them compensation? Yes. Yeah, that's how I think, too, is that I, I think he definitely inspired them. He definitely sandballed their site so he could so he could get started first in the movie's world. And so, yeah, he, he took their idea and ran with it and made it better in all these things. But – they inspired him, and I did think that they were kind of getting, you know, even though they're the kind of entitled brats, I thought they were kind of getting the shaft, which was hilarious. Yeah, uh, and I totally agree. They were getting the shaft. Like I said, the the whole idea of what these depositions were about was just how little you have to pay them because you're <laughs> right. going to have to you're going to have to pay them. Yeah. Um, and but it was a, it was after that speech that I realized really he is the only guy that could take this yeah. thing oh, to yeah. this level Without and so he, he deserves to pay as little as possible not that he doesn't you know not that he shouldn't pay uh for certain um but 65 million dollars is not a bad check to have cut to you <laughs> true true but this is you know spoiler alert that's gonna lead up to my 
uh, least quote unquote least favorite scene and quote and stuff, Bob. But I'll hold off on that for a bit. But yeah, this is a this is a great quote, and this is a great Zuckerberg fighting and standing up for himself. I, I think you picked a good one. Well, let's get right into talking about uh, favorite and least favorite scene then. And uh, Bubba, why don't you uh, start off with one of your favorites? Well, as everybody heard at the beginning of this podcast, I gave it 10 out of 10. So I loved so many scenes that I was trying to – I couldn't choose between a bunch of scenes that I love. So I tried to pick like just favorite little moments. And so my probably favorite moment in the entire film is when Eduardo draws back like he's going to punch Sean Parker in the face. And Sean Parker probably deserves it according to my opinion. And Sean reacts so childishly as he kind of backs away all scared and frightened. And I love Mm. that Eduardo didn't punch him and took enjoyment from just seeing this little guy squirm. Here's your $19,000. I wouldn't cash it though. I drew it on the account you froze. I like sitting next to you, Sean. It makes me look so tough. Uh, I love that. That was a favorite moment. But then to give it up to Mark uh, Zuckerberg is when his lawyer starts to mention the animal cruelty charges. What's great is you see uh, the character, Jesse Eisenberg, the actor, the character Mark Zuckerberg, lead forward as if he's trying to stop his lawyer from bringing this up. And so that's kind of my own little visual hint that, hey, maybe Mark didn't really bring this to anybody's attention. And so uh, those are just two little moments in a sea of a million moments I love. And so those were my favorite. Uh, Well, it's funny for me because uh, my favorite and least favorites are at either end of the movie. Um, But uh, since we're just going with favorites first, my favorite was at the beginning with Mark and Erica. Again, I I mentioned that before, but I was just instantly drawn into them. Like you like you mentioned, you're instantly informed about uh, Zuckerberg. And what part of Long Island are you from? Wimbledon? Wait, I'm going back to my door. Wait, wait. Is this real? Yes. Okay, then wait. I apologize, okay? I have to go study. Erica? Yes. I'm sorry. I mean it. I appreciate that, but I have to go study. Come on. You don't have to study. You don't have to study. Let's just talk. I can't. Why? Because it is exhausting. Dating you is like dating a stairmaster. All I meant is that you're not likely to... Currently. I wasn't making a comment on your parents. I was just saying that you go to BU. I was stating a fact. That's all. And if it seemed rude, then of course I apologize. I have to go study. You don't have to study. Why do you keep saying I don't have to study? Because you go to BU. <laughs> you want to get some food? I'm sorry you are not sufficiently impressed with my education. I'm sorry I don't have a robot, so we're even. I think we should just be friends. I don't want friends. I was just being polite. I have no intention of being friends with you. I'm under some pressure right now from my OS class, and if we could just order some food, I think we should be. Okay, you are probably going to be a very successful computer person. But you're going to go through life thinking that girls don't like you because you're a nerd. And I want you to know from the bottom of my heart that that won't be true. Going into the mind and and the insensitivity that he has, um, and once again, I thought Rooney Mara just held her own in the scene, and it it just instantly propels you into the movie. And you're not once you once you're sunk into your seat that far, um, just being blown away by by that impression of that scene to me. Um, And then you have uh, right after that. it continues to build because you have this fantastic piece of scoring from from uh, Trent and Atticus, um, and then it goes right into him 
doing the whole thing about the blogging. It, it just that scene um, couldn't have been more perfect uh, to start off this movie to me. And think of how non-visual this is. <laughs> Movies are a visual medium. This is two people sitting across from each other at a table having a conversation. And yet it's riveting. You're drawn into it immediately. Great job by Sorkin with incredible dialogue. Great job by uh, the actors giving great performances. Great job by uh, Fincher getting the pace right and editing right. And and you're able in what could be the most you know non-visual scene ever, two people at a table talking to each other, you're drawn into it immediately. I, I, I think it is a great scene. If it's okay, let me go to my least favorite scene. And in a movie that I love, this is kind of calling it a least favorite scene be- that I love this scene, but actually just still drives me nuts to this day. And that is Harvard president, Larry Summers. Now for everybody who needs to know, Larry Summers is one of these economic after Harvard. He's one of these economic bigwigs who's, you know, always leading our country into economic ruin. Anytime there's a recession, it seems like Larry Summers has been involved in wall street one way or another, but he is such an idiot. Like, Oh, well, just create another idea. And the Winklevoss twins get it. They're like, wait, another idea that's going to be another billion-dollar idea? Are you crazy? And Larry Summers in the movie, and if this is true to life, in real life, was just so god-awfully stupid. Yes, he's fighting the you know entitled Winklevoss twins, which they do come across as entitled. But the fact that, once again, this old guy, you know, old money versus new money, this old guy doesn't get it at all. I love the scene, and yet it drives me crazy. So that's my least favorite scene in the film. <laughs> do you think that, um, I mean, given the circumstances where, that they were, and, and given uh, the way Sorkin tends to lean left, uh, and is pretty much against big money or, or, well, I don't know if he's against big money because he makes big money. Oh, yeah. But um, he, 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 I, I just almost, that whole political side of Aaron Sorkin, I almost feel like it was, it was a chance for him to take an extra jab uh, at, a, at a political standpoint uh, just to, to poke fun at Larry Summers. Well, well, people would, and, and Larry Summers, you know, he, Sorkin is a big liberal, and I'll, I'll, you know, cards on the table, I'm re- very liberal myself, but Summers, you know, is a quote-unquote new Democrat, and so he's been working for the, uh, you know, the Obama administration and the Clinton administration before that he had worked. It's just he is also the kind of guy who Sorkin might hate, one of these, you know, guys who are, dare I say it, you know? They're the kind of people who Senator Elizabeth Warren was trying to get a wrangle on because Wall Street seems so de- deregulated and out of control. But, yeah, he, he is definitely a clueless character. And if Sorkin took it out on him, this is one time where I'll let uh, Sorkin create a straw man for me. I don't see this as a university issue. Of course this is a university issue. There's a code of ethics and an honor code, and he violated You enter into a code of ethics with the university, not with each other. I'm sorry, President Summers, but... What you just said makes no sense to me at all. I'm devastated by that. What, what my brother means is if Mark Zuckerberg walked into our dorm room and, and stole our computer, that would be a university I issue. I really don't know. This office doesn't handle petty larceny. This isn't petty larceny. Right. This idea is potentially worth millions of dollars. Millions? Yes. You might just be letting your imaginations run away with you. Sir, I honestly don't think you're in any position to make that call. I was the U.S. Treasury Secretary. I'm in some position to make that call. Well, letting our imaginations run away with us is exactly what we were told to do in your freshman address. Well, then I would suggest that you let your imaginations run away with you on a new project. You would? Yes. Everyone at Harvard's inventing something. 
Harvard undergraduates believe that inventing a job is better than finding a job. So I'll suggest again that the two of you come up with a new, new project. I, I'm sorry, sir, but that's not the point. Please, arrive at the point. You don't have to be an intellectual property expert to understand the difference between right and wrong. And you're saying that I don't. Of course I'm not saying that, sir. I'm saying that. Really? Sir. And how did they get this appointment? Colleagues of their father. Let me tell you something, Mr. Winklevoss, Mr. Winklevoss, since you're on the subject of right and wrong, this action, this meeting, the two of you being here, is wrong. It's not worthy of Harvard. It's not what Harvard saw in you. You don't get special treatment. We never asked. Oh, wait, just start another project? If you like, have, like we're making a diorama for a science fair? If you have fair? a problem with that, Mr. We Winklevoss. We never asked for special the treatment. The courts are always at your disposal. Is there anything else I can do for you? Oh, you can take the Harvard student handbook and tie. <laughs> All right. Um, my talk least about fav- your least favorite. Yeah, talk yeah, about your my, least My least favorite scene, as I mentioned, uh, my favorites and least favorites were at the beginning and the end of the movie because to me, um, this was the one Sorkin flair to the film that I, it's one thing about Sorkin that I just can't handle. And that's the, the kind of the quote, here's the moral of the story scene. Uh, we get one with Jed Bartlett at the end of every episode of The West Wing. And uh, we get one pretty much with the cast in every episode of the newsroom. Um, it's the here's the deal, uh, and and it's the one where where uh, Delpy tells Zuckerberg to settle. I've been licensed to practice law for all of twenty months, and I could get a jury to believe that you planted the story about Eduardo and the chicken. Watch what else. Why weren't you at Sean's sorority party that night? You think I'm the one that called the police? Doesn't matter. I asked a question. Now everybody's thinking about it. You've lost your jury in the first ten minutes. Farm animals. Yeah. I was drunk and angry and stupid. And blogging. And blogging. Pay them. In the scheme of things, it's a speeding ticket. That's what Sai will tell you tomorrow. Do you think anybody would mind if I stayed and used the computer for a minute? I can't imagine it would be a problem. Thanks. I appreciate your help today. You're not an asshole, Mark. You're just trying so hard to be. Sorkin does have to have one of these in almost everything that he writes. Um, anywhere from A Few Good Men, to The Great Play, to, to this, to every episode of television he writes. But maybe that's why it drives me so crazy is because I expect it. And even though I expect it, um, I'm still surprised that he did it yet again. And it's not has nothing to do with Rashida Jones's performance. No, she's she, great. Yeah. She was fantastic in this movie. Um, it, it's just that... I, I don't like that kind of thing in any of my movies. And maybe it's because I am so Sorkin soaked with everything else um, that I was just hoping maybe we could get one Sorkin movie without that. Let, let me say something, Matt, in that I'm trying to figure out why it didn't bother me. As listeners of the podcast know, I, I really am not a West Wing expert at all. Now I've watched a total of four episodes. But I did watch an awful lot of the newsroom, and it drove me nuts in the newsroom without question. But dare I say it, maybe it didn't bother me so much in this film is because Rashida Jones' character, dare I say it, is the audience. She's not really kind of, you know, the the wise old mentor or even the hero in this film. The whole film, she kind of acts as the audience. She's like, oh, wow, your face mash site had this many hits? Oh, no, this many hits. Wow. You know, she's kind of the 
our audience surrogate in a lot of ways. So the fact when she's kind of laying it out on the table, maybe that's why in this one instance, it didn't drive me quite as nuts as it sounds like it drove you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I think that that's great. I, I think that's a great observation to make because usually it is like the main character or, or the, the mentor or the father figure or the leader uh, that gives this uh, kind of information or, or delivers this kind of dialogue uh, scene. But, uh, and again, I, I think Rashida Jones did great with what she was given. I just wish so Sorkin had chose not to write it. Um, anything else about uh, favorite scenes? No, just, I mean, I could, this is something which I'll admit, it's not a film like a Star Wars film where I've seen, you know, so many times I can't even count. This is a film probably when all is said and done, I've seen the whole way through probably only three times. But when it's on cable and I'm flipping through or something, it's one that I can I can immediately get hooked into. And so, uh, so many great scenes, so many great moments. Really, you know, to be completely honest, there isn't a scene that I really you know would skip if I if I had a DVD. I wouldn't skip a, a single moment of the film. I think it's I think it's one of the good ones. I absolutely agree. Um, and I really like the way that this movie was shot as well. And in fact, uh, one of my favorite shots was just the fact, and thank you, by the way, uh, for sending me the, the actual script. I haven't read this scene yet uh, in the script, but I appreciate the, the link to getting to read the actual script and, and kind of compare it to what was shot. I plan on doing that at some point in the future. But one of my favorite shots was when Parker was telling Mark about the party when he's in jail. And <laughs> yeah. there's a guy in the background and he's flipping the lights off. And to me, that was such a visual connection to what's going on in Mark's mind. I, I thought that and, and, you know, that's that's a that's almost as overdone as Sorkin's moral of the story moment. But nonetheless, it really hit me emotionally because I, I could see how Mark was seeing how all of this stuff all in one night, seemingly, or, or yeah. according to the story. And that's probably dramatization. But it really brought everything home, how, how the darkness was kind of surrounding Mark, and he knew that this was the end of a lot of associations. Even though I'm out here in Hollywood and I've sold a screenplay that got made into a terrible movie and all these things, I'm not always so quick to notice kind of making styles and kind of cinematography choices and these kind of things. But watching this film, one thing I did notice is how much of it is hit with what I would call blue light, i.e. so much of the film seems to be lit. Even if it's not in front of a computer screen, it's lit the exact same kind of way a computer screen would light somebody's face. And I think that was a, a kind of a brilliant choice. When you watch this film, watch how it really does feel like they didn't use any key or fill lights or any of this stuff, uh, or even any sunlight. It feels like the whole movie has been lit by computer screens. And I thought that was a brilliant choice by his team there, Finchers. Yeah. Kudos to the director of photography for thinking of that one. Yeah. Uh, and the lighting guys. Excellent. 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 Uh, of course, another really fascinating part to me was, was the score. And we will be talking about that shortly, but before we do that, um, I, I just wonder if there's anything else about that film uh, or about this particular film or its subject matter that you wanted to comment on. Well, I just have one other kind of thought since I've sung, sung its praises so much. And I have praised Sorkin 
his uh, kind of script so much. But then there is this dichotomy between me where I can love a few good men, I can love the social network and certain Sorkin things, and yet certain Sorkin projects, like for specifically the newsroom, just leave me so I, I so disappointed. I, I almost kind of revolt, re, re, revolt against them. And so I was wondering if I should give much more credit to the director, David Fincher, than I do. I had, you know, I had said earlier in this podcast that I wasn't a huge Fincher fan. I really wasn't a huge fan of Alien 3, which was probably the first time I really noticed him directing a film. But one of the things that Fincher did, or I wonder if it's Fincher, I'm going to have to read this script entirely myself too, is if Fincher, because he is so cold and kind of distant and kind of more like Stanley Kubrick as a director, if that coldness washed away any of what in the newsroom I see a lot, and that's Aaron Sorkin sentimentality. Yay, you're a great hero, kind of aw, sweet. <laughs> and so uh, I'm not I'm not sure if it's Sorkin script or it was Sorkin script and Fincher's kind of just kind of cold, hard, clinical look at things that made me love this so much because sentimentality is not one, not a word that comes to mind when you think about this film, The Social Network, is it? This is not, ah, uh, look back at these great kids who created this great internet tool that we all use. It's not that at all. And so uh, I'm going to have to, myself, I just found the script myself, so I'm going to have to check it and see uh, how much kind of Fincher drained that color from the world as he was lighting everything in computer screens. Yeah, an interesting observation, and uh, I'm, I want to do that too now, uh, because you're right, Sorkin is overly sentimental in everything. Uh, he can just, be, in, in, in so many of his projects, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he definitely uh, has uh, put the sentimentality uh, tone on the West Wing, for certain, which is why I'm sure you will never watch another episode after you get to your four. And here I was going to have you back to watch season a couple of episodes oh, of season okay. two with me. Well, I'm I'm looking at Venture. I'm sorry, I'm looking at Sorkin's IMDb page, and in the American President had a lot of sentimentality in it, and I really like that. The few a few good men has some, not much, but it has some. And uh, you know, some of these other films, Moneyball has some, and I liked Moneyball an awful lot. So it's. I don't know. I'm once again. I once I read this script, uh, I'll, I'll go to Twitter and, and give my final vote for who deserves the most credit. Uh, well, Fincher well, how can people find that tweet? <laughs> you took my bait so well, there, Matt. It's at Fit and Trim on Twitter. F I T T E N T R I M at Fit and Trim on Twitter. Please follow me so I can catch up with my buddy Matt. And make sure to tweet to him that you found him via the Sorkin cast. Yes, at please Sorkincast do. on Twitter, yeah. Uh, that way he'll know exactly where where all of these droves of followers are coming from because he's <laughs> he, he appears on so many podcasts. I'm sure he doesn't know which podcast you listen to to find him. That's true. I do many. Too many, dear Lord. Well, as I mentioned before, I really don't have uh, anything else to say about the film except for the score. And so here is just a short little score review, more focusing on how Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross made something that can be very cold, electronic music, give you an emotional level um, that maybe Fincher did drain away from Sorkin's writing.
And that little snippet of that cut is entitled Hand Covers Bruise. It's from the very beginning of the movie. And it represents one of the more prominent themes in this movie. But I don't really want to talk about themes. Sometimes I do that um, so that you can recognize them in other parts of the soundtrack. What I really wanted to talk about was how electronic music often comes across more as something to drive a beat or something to uh, create an effect and how it was very interesting that Atticus Ross and, and, and Trent Reznor were able to create emotion using basic electronics. If you take a look at, at Trent Reznor's studio, I mean, it is wall-to-wall archaic synthesizers. Somewhere you actually have to physically plug wires from one port to another in order to create timbral differences in the sounds. Uh, And one that is a very unique instrument, which is featured a lot in this soundtrack, which is called the Swarmatron, which was, I think, created by a, a few guys in Brooklyn that just... I mean, it literally is a box. It looks like it's got kind of like this uh, <laughs> car fan belt stretched across it, how, and you run your fingers across that to create the pitch, and there's all kinds of samples in it and everything. But it actually is a big part of creating what we call the organic sound of this soundtrack, as opposed to it sounding digital. Of course, all of the synthesizers are analog, first of all, that are used, but the whole idea of organic transcends electronics. And there's a couple of ways that uh, Trent and Atticus were able to do this. One is the use of a familiar timbre. Now, I don't think that it was an actual piano that was used in the recording of that cut you just heard i think it was actually an electronic simulation on some analog um, synth Um, but i'm not sure about that but nonetheless that's an instrument sound that we're familiar with and it has these very looping dropping of large distance of notes after the first note between the second and third note of each of those little figures the melody drops way down. And that helps convey the depth of feeling for our character of Mark Zuckerberg. He's just been shot down by his girlfriend. Um, He's confused a little bit. And you'll hear that theme return throughout the movie in places where he's either hurting his friends or he's getting hurt by his friends. Well, his one friend and his colleagues, I guess I should say. Here's that melody. Uh, I'm sure you recognize it again. Here it is. But that's not really what makes the emotion of this piece. What makes the emotion of this piece is actually something being done by the Swarmatron in the background on this particular note. It's very high up there in the pitch. It's kind of mixed in the background. But what happens, if you listen to the entire first part of the movie and just listen to the music 
you'll hear that note actually change pitch a little bit. It goes a little sharp. It goes a little flat. Sometimes it almost reaches the tonic. Sometimes it almost reaches the D instead of being centered on a C sharp. And that's because the Swarmatron, the band that you set your fingers on, you can actually bend it one way or the other. And most of us do not have perfect voices. If we try to hold a note for a long time, then we lose a little bit of pitch or we gain a little bit of pitch. And that creates a very organic element that you don't even realize is subconsciously happening to you. There's another way that electronic music can transcend being electronic. And it becomes instead, like I said, organic. And that is through the use of melody. Now we had that melody earlier where everything kind of dropped down. It always ended going downward. But in the very next sequence, when he starts to get the idea for the facedmash.com, then we hear a melody that goes up because he's doing something to pick himself up out of the dumps and he's setting things into motion that proves his brilliance and, and how he can basically work the system. There are some really interesting things about the way that this melody is put together. So I want to uh, play the cut for you first. It's entitled In Motion from the official soundtrack. Just a little snippet of it. Here we go. as opposed to the prior tune, as I mentioned, this melody goes up. It ends on the higher pitch, as opposed to the prior melody, which ended always on the lower pitch. And that creates a kind of an uplifting feeling psychologically. Now, that doesn't always work for uh, tunes. Some tunes can be sad, and they can have notes that end up very high. Um, that's when you get into lyrical stuff, or chord resolution, what, what kind of chord goes underneath those high notes and everything. But here you get just a sense of uplifting because we've had that moment where the prior music made us feel so down. This this picks us back up, and this is as he's working on the facemash.com. And there's another thing that's really odd about that melody is that it creates intrigue. How does it do that? Because there's a note in there that doesn't really fit in the scale that it's from. Let me play the melody for you again. Now the first note is within the scale, but it's a second note. It's the one that holds out the first time. The, 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 the very second note of that melody 
is a G sharp in the key of D. There is no G sharp in the key of D. In fact, uh, the bass line doesn't have notes that are actually in the key of D either, but we'll talk about that in a minute. What it has with this G sharp is what we call a raised fourth or a sharp 11. It is a note that is derived if you take the A scale and play it from D to D as opposed to if you play the D scale from D to D. That's called the Lydian mode. And what a Lydian mode does is it creates excitement because there is no chord resolution in it. The fourth scale degree of any key is crucial to how chords resolve. And because we have a G sharp here, as opposed to a G natural, and a G natural normally resolves down to an F sharp in the key of D, since we have it going first of all, up, and then not what we would expect for a resolution like we had in the first tune, then we're intrigued. We're seeing a process is happening. We're seeing not only is it uplifting, but we're seeing that something's just a little bit out of the box, and, and that immediately draws us in to the fact that this guy can hack all of these schools and put this together. Um, even if it is a joke, uh, he's still demonstrating his brilliance and that intrigues us now while the melody is outside of the box so is the harmony because we do have places where we feel like this tune is major it's uplifting it's in a major key yet the harmony and the bass line follow much more of a dorian scale kind of mode here's what the bass line sounds like So there are two glaring instances where the melody and the harmony actually clash, not at the same time. So you don't really hear the clash simultaneously because that would be way too dissonant to create the effect that they're trying to create. But it does make everything move. It makes you excited for what's happening because the bass line has a Dorian feel to it. It has an F in the bass line as opposed to the F sharp, which is in the melody. It does have the G in the bass line as opposed to the G sharp that is in the melody. So you can tell that I'm using the same note letter for actually what are two different notes, which are a half step apart. And anytime you have that half step kind of thing going on, it creates excitement. Even if it doesn't happen at the same time, moving from one to the other creates excitement because it creates motion. And I love the fact that this title track is called In Motion. Here is the Dorian mode that the bass line and the harmony is based on. And again, by comparison, listen to the Lydian mode that the melody is based on.
So that's what generates the excitement. And it's really an old nine inch nails trick. Trent Reznor has been doing what I call, you know, polyharmonic things for a very long time. Uh, in uh, almost every record, you will find these things where he will sing something kind of sounding major while there's a minor thing going on underneath, or he'll reverse it. He'll sing something kind of minor on top while there's a major thing going on underneath. But what all of this does is it transcends the medium that is being used, which is the medium, of course, that Trent and Atticus love. They love using these old devices to create emotional music. One last thing that makes this piece organic is, again, that swarmatron that is being used. It almost sounds like somebody kind of doing ooze or humming along with the melody. Um, you hear it in the in kind of a little bit back in the mix, but it kind of goes from one pitch to the other weirdly. It kind of like uh, like that. Um, that is another thing that creates the organic because you're not defining pitch by two singular notes. You're gliding in between. And again, that's achieved with the Swarmatron where he's just running his fingers over the what I call the uh, the the belt the fan belt <laughs> of the thing uh, to create the pitch and when he goes from one to the other he just leaves his finger on it so that every little semi pitch that's in between those two notes gets heard on the way from one to the other it's absolutely brilliant it creates a very organic feel um, and I love the fact that they they've First of all, that Trent even found an operating Swarmatron. I'm sure he's had it for a while. But it really sounds fantastic in the soundtrack. And it's one of those elements that really creates the organic feel of this soundtrack as well. And that's all I have to say. So we will go back to Bubba. And thanks for listening to my little talk about the soundtrack of the film. Well, Bubba, you've kind of already spoiled your rating, uh, but if you have anything else to say as to how you arrived at the rating, uh, please let us know. I do a special kind of rating system. You can find it, folks, at sorkincast.wordpress.com. Uh, there's a little tab up top where you can say the sort. You can see the Sorkincast rating system. Um, so my rating system goes a little crazy, which is why sometimes I arrive at some strange numbers. But Bubba, how did you arrive at your rating? And uh, again, repeat what you rated it. Well, I'm one of these uh, millennials, even if not in age and spirit, to where you've got to keep me uh, attached to not lose my focus. I watch this at home uh, for this to get ready for this podcast where I have all the distractions. I have phones. I have iPads. I have everything that could distract me. Yet I could sit there and watch it and not be distracted by any of the things. It could engross me. It's still as good today as it was the first time I saw it. So – it is kind of way too high for a tough critic like me, but I'm going 10 out of 10. I want to hear yours, Matt. I want to hear this crazy system. All right. Well, I do have this crazy system, and once again, you should go to sorkincast.wordpress.com to find it. Um, this is definitely, for me, a, a high 8 or even a low 9 out of 10 for me. In fact, I'm going to go 9.2 
because I really part part of the stipulation is would I recommend this to somebody? Uh, would I run over my grandmother to see this film? And this that's what the ten is, <laughs> more or less. So I can't quite go there. I would not run over a grandmother uh, to watch this film. You survived, Granny. Yeah, you survived. You wouldn't. Uh, grandmother wouldn't have survived with like Star Wars or Raiders of the Lost Ark. Those are my kind of tens. Now, wait a um, minute. What if Sorkin hadn't put this is the moral of the story scene at the end? Would Granny be dead then? What's <laughs> going on? <laughs> no, she'd still be safe. Oh, she'd still good, be safe. good, Granny. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that that's the that's the kind of rating system that I use, folks. Once again, go to it. But I am going nine point two. And Bubba, I really want to thank you so much for for joining me this week. It was great to have you back on this podcast again. As you know, Bubba does great podcasts about Game of Thrones. He did him and Catfish did one about Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. They just covered the first season of Ash vs. the Evil Dead on Stars. Um, and then you'll find sporadic things on the Double P Podcast Network like a Star Wars podcast or uh, about a, a book that was the sequel slash prequel to a killing a mockingbird Bubba, tell us all about it and and please one or two more times tell us how to follow you on twitter yes please thank you so much everybody for joining us on this wonderful uh look back at the social network if you enjoy my stuttering bubbering me saying uh um uh uh you can hear me on other podcasts to find out just go to facebook.com hey 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 plug for the social network it's facebook.com slash double p podcasts plural so that's the word double the letter p and the word podcasts plural facebook.com slash double p podcast i can't wait to you guys uh you know come and have a discussion with us if you disagree with me and you think this film is a zero out of ten I want to hear it. I'll defriend you on Facebook, but I still want to hear it. So please, uh, and check me out on Twitter at Fit and Trim. Thank you so much, Matt. This is this is great. Is is this Sorkin's best movie script or, or best movie that's been produced from his script? Ooh, it is close with his play slash screenplay for a few good men and some others for me. But maybe this is it. Maybe this is my number one of his uh, screenplays that have been turned into feature films. Wow. Wow. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you once again, Bubba. And folks, reminder, we're going to get back to the sentimentality side of Aaron Sorkin next uh, week. Wait, how do I leave this? Exit. Exit. <laughs> next week, it's we start season two of The West Wing with season two, episode one, In the Shadow of Two Gunmen, part one. Remember, you can always send an email to SorkinCast at gmail.com, or you can tweet at SorkinCast about how much you love the fact that we say fit and trim that's at fit and trim f-i-t-t-e-n-t-r-i-m on twitter in a singular podcast take care everyone find all of the back episodes links and more information at sorkincast.wordpress.com leave the podcast a written review at our itunes or stitcher store pages to submit feedback send emails to sorkincast at gmail.com or call 314 Six six nine one eight four zero. The Sorkin Cast is a member of the Rewatching Good TV Network.